Welcome back again to another edition of Natsukashi, where we wax nostalgic through cinema. Typically, we take a look at some of the more obscure films from the video vault, but uh, there's one in particular that just had such a profound impact over so many years for so many people. And today, we're going to talk about Jaws. And with us this evening is Rob Rector, I'm your host, and Jeff John Efferdent. If you will. You're, you're leading salt water aficionado. <laughs> exactly. Straight from the shores of Colorado. <laughs> yeah, man, we know all about sea. That's right. You know all about semen, don't you? All right, so there's no sense in really going over the plot with this because if you don't know it by now, then you should be tuning into an, another podcast altogether. Well, that's fine. Send it away now. Cozy up to the audience right away, right? Please leave. <laughs> So let's just talk a little bit about kind of the impact of Jaws. I mean, first we can go over kind of the, the basics. Sterling Hayden is Quint, Charlton Heston is Brody, and Jeff Bridges is Hooper. <laughs> of course. That was just part of some of the names that were lobbed out there when they were first thinking about making Jaws. I think uh, I read someplace that Bridges turned it down, didn't he? I don't know if he did. I know Dreyfus initially did, and then he did uh, that Duddy Kravitz movie and, and then kind of rushed right back into Spielberg's warm embrace and said, please, please accept me. So, <laughs> yeah, well, well, whenever you think those guys are smart, all you got to do is figure out the movies that they turned down. When I was doing the, the reading about it, there was also some other names that you might not be aware of. Jan Michael Vincent? Oh, God. As Hooper? Well, that, God, well, see, that could have worked really well because he did that Airwolf. helicopter thing after Scheider did that horrible True, movie. true. Airwolf was kind of inspired by Blue Thunder, so that's true. Vincent would have been probably in his 20s at the time, and yeah. he would have been the drunkest guy on the set. Also, some other names lobbied were Robert Duvall, Lee Marvin as uh, as Quint, Harvey Corman. Kidding. No, I'm not. Yeah, as... I heard he was gonna he was gonna play a Shider's wife. <laughs> Have a golf player that way. Actually, no, but interesting enough, Victoria Principal was in early negotiations as Mrs. Brody. She's a good-looking girl, Allie. Peter Benchley, who wrote the book upon which it was based, and actually wrote the screenplay, he wanted uh, a real subtle cast. He didn't really want name casting. His three picks were Redford, Newman, and McQueen. Downstating. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Harvey Corbin now playing the mayor. He'd have been great. But you know what? It's funny that you say that because Murray Hamilton, who was a guy who played the mayor in that that movie, wow! I hear I hear gulls in the background. Are you really trying to make this official? Aren't you? Oh man, I'm out. It's, what do you mean? I'm I'm are, out uh, fishing for a shark as we speak. Are you chumming right now? <laughs> yeah, but that happens all the time. Okay, Murray Hamilton, who played the the mayor with the incredible fashion sense, he was actually the only star that uh, Spielberg. That was his first choice. He wanted him to play the mayor. Between you'd think they would have given him a little bit bigger role. Yeah. That was his first choice. Maybe he had a designer that Murray had uh, connections with. It was all about the anchor, Jack. That never caught on, surprisingly enough. I, I, I don't think you appreciate the gut reaction people have to these things. Harry, I appreciate it. I'm just reacting to what I was told. Martin, it's all psychological. You yell Barracuda. Everybody says, huh? What? You yell Shark. We've got a panic on our hands on the 4th of July. It was a film that had 
so much of not even a national impact, but a global one. It was the the first blockbuster to make a hundred million and really kind of set the the measure for what quote unquote summer blockbusters were. That that term wasn't even used until Jaws hit the screens and it hit on four hundred and ninety screens, which at the time was considered to be monumental. And compare that today with Iron Man, which opens up on four thousand screens and it just that ripple effect pun intended also went to other continents as well you know as far out as as Hungary and because it hit such a primal nerve in people on a global scale because it dealt with fear that we can't see so regardless of whether you were at a coastal community or you were in a landlocked state such as Colorado then it was still felt oh yeah you know I go to I go to coffee with my pop and you know he'd go to coffee with all these farmers we lived in a very rural area and I mean imagine this guy with a great big black beard a big black cowboy hat wearing his overalls <laughs> you know and this guy's talking about sharks and like and I'm looking at him like oh you, how come you're not talking about potatoes or barley what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know it's like when was the last time a shark came up and bit you on the behind while you're driving your John Deere right right exactly you know, and you know it hit every kid on the playground it it hit every storefront. I said in my uh, written preamble that sporting goods store. It didn't. This sporting goods store was right on the main dragon town. It had huge display windows, and the only book they ever sold was the one that you had to read before you bought your hunting license. <laughs> but they had this damn book displayed, and right in the front window, this was you know the next store up was like a flower shop, and there's the book, and then the and then the drugstore. Right? It was everywhere. Right. I, you know, if we would have had a 7-Eleven or a McDonald's at the time, I'm sure they would have been selling along with a Big Mac or a chili cheese dog. I was a tad bit younger and kind of shot over me, the whole uh, mania over it. So I didn't really come to the Jaws phenomenon until later in the game. The first Jaws encounter that I had was... Do you remember the game that was released? Not this video game, but back in the day, and it had to be late 70s, early 80s, there was Jaws the Game, and it was this plastic toy-looking shark with a big... You pump it and the jaws would go up now? Yeah, it had a big gaping mouth, exactly. It had this gaping mouth, and you got to pick pieces of trash out of its mouth. They didn't have any arms or girls' heads in there or anything, but there was like... Right, there was like a license plate, there was a boot, there was a fish fish skeleton. There was all these things, and they had different weights to them, and you were supposed to pluck out, kind of like Jenga. Could you get the last one before the jaws snap shut on you? Kind of an operation type. Exactly, game. exactly. It indicates the non frenzy feeding of a large squalus, possibly Angemanus or Asurus glaucus. Now, the enormous amount of tissue loss prevents any detailed analysis. However, the attacking squalus must be considerably larger than any normal squalus found in these waters. Didn't you get on a boat and check out these waters? No. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller, it wasn't any coral reef, and it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. Now, you have since moved from Colorado to a coastal community, and you had time to really 
gain perspective on this film? Because you haven't really watched it all the way through until recently, correct? Sure, it, it's been several years since I've seen it all the way through, yeah. And now you have a chance to see it from an adult perspective, too. And I'm interested to hear some of the things that, that really stuck out to you. Well, the, the season. Understanding that the season and, the, and how important the 4th of July is. And actually, how the season didn't start till the 4th of July. And it's like, well, hold on, you missed an entire month. I can't imagine shutting the beaches down here. Living in a coast community like we do, the accuracy of the film is what strikes me today, is that they did go to great lengths to, to be rather accurate as far as the feel is concerned. Another place where they were really accurate, at least in the genesis of it, was Peter Benchley's book was based on a shark attack, an actual shark attack that, that occurred in 1916. And I read a book a couple years ago, Michael Capuzzo, I believe is how you say his name. It was called Close to Shore, and it was about the first shark attacks that took place a little north of here in New Jersey. And in 1916, and five people died there. And the interesting thing is... Quint's name was based on five because it is a Quint. Yeah, it all comes around. I didn't pick it up thanks to imdb.com. Five people had died, just as in the movie. A leg was found in the tide. So a lot of the genesis of the story Jaws in the first place came from fact. So that was kind of, I thought that was kind of interesting. After so many Spielberg movies, they, he might be completely out there in, you know, a lot of the plot of the movie, but he seems to base a lot of fact throughout, so it's kind of believable. And really, I didn't think a whole lot far-fetched about the movie. Maybe the size of the shark, you know, there were a couple of things. When they, when they found the girl that was killed... I mean, they found her up against the dune fence. Was like, that was funny. My God, their, their tides must be like 25, 30 feet. You on the Indianapolis? Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into her side, Chief. He was coming back from the island of Tinian to Lady. just delivered the bomb, the Hiroshima bomb. 1,100 men went into the water. The vessel went down in 12 minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, 13-footer, you know. You know that when you're in the water, Chief. You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. When we watched it recently, you were commenting on how much you enjoyed the performance of Robert Shaw as, as Quint, as the crusty seafarer Quint. And he does make one of the most memorable entrances ever on film with his nails creeping down the chalkboard like that. Yeah, I had I didn't remember that part. And I just absolutely love that. And then he like drawn this like crude shark on the chalkboard. That <laughs> killed me. And that's what the Jaws game looked like. That Jaws game looked just like that shark on there. It was all out of proportion. It was like all mouth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> shark is like eighteen inches long but he's got a his jaws will take up like you need a whole Ford pickup. One of the things that you had mentioned when we watched it was the speech that he gave when they were all doing comparisons, this the scar comparisons. And the interesting thing enough, when we watched it, just just an aside, remember we watched it and Roy Scheider kind of lifted his shirt up and I said, oh, there's an appendectomy scar I had, you know, just just joking with us. He actually was doing that. That There was an appendectomy scar. I didn't see it, but he did have one, and that's kind of what he was showing. 
I would see why you just put your shirt down and shut up. Yeah, exactly. After all those. I got stitches when I was eight when I ran my head into the side of the wall when I was roller skating. You gotta love the one-upmanship on the, on the you know, you're my war wounds kind of thing, and I just love that. I love how they built up to it, and then who could have ever had a story that would have topped that Indianapolis story? And to tell you the truth, when I watched it the first time, I mean, it was, eh, you know, but I was a kid. I didn't know about the Indianapolis. And, right. But really, the way he explains it, you know, the whole thing, is it was top secret. Nobody knew about it. But when you watch that scene, it doesn't matter how many people are in the room, who's watching, what's going on. The whole room gets quiet. It's even worse than, you know, that whole put your head on a swivel when you drive by a, a bad auto wreck or something. To me, that scene is what makes that Robert Shaw's role. Nobody else in my mind could ever do it, and they could never remake it because they never get that story right. Interestingly enough that you bring that up is that Robert Shaw actually rewrote that entire piece there. It was first written by a playwright by the name of Howard Sackler, and then John Melius, uh, who's a director, uh, screenwriter, he tried to stretch it out a little bit, but then it, they, nobody was really happy with it, including Peter Benchley, and then Robert Shaw rewrote it himself, and that's the one that Benchley finally okayed and said, this is this is what we've got to use. See, to me, that's just incredible. Yeah. But well, I guess that just proves the point that it was his role. And what's crazy is we had watched a couple of the clips, you know, the cut clips afterwards on the DVD. Right. And, you know, they're, they're showing cuts of him actually going into the shark's mouth, and they actually squirt blood up into his eyes, <laughs> and they call cut, and everybody's laughing. But Shaw never comes out of character. He's like, holy Moses. I can't imagine what it was like. If you go out to dinner with him, you know, after a day of shooting, I'm sure he was a crusty old sea captain. And You go inside the cage. Cage goes in the water. You go in the water. Shark's in the water. Our shark. Farewell and adieu to you, fair Spanish ladies. The the orca, the boat that they were on, was besieged by the shark, and there was, I guess, what you would call a moment of clarity from Robert Shaw yeah. that really stood out to you. It was. He went through, and all along, he was the boss. He was the captain. We do what I say, and we do it when I say, and you do it now. And he had made fun of Hooper uh, or Richard Dreyfus about all the equipment that he brought and calling him college boy and all that. But he had said during the Indianapolis story that he'd never wear a life vest again. It, it was obvious that at a certain point in the movie that he'd done everything that he knew that he could do. At this point, here comes cooperation. And the cooperation comes with, the, I guess, the survival instinct. You know, if all else fails, let's see a college boy isn't as stupid as I think he is. And he goes into the cabin. And he looks up to his right, and he sees the life vest. And it's not that far after the story of the Indianapolis when he said he'd never wear one. And next thing you know, he pops out, and he throws one to Scheider, and he throws one to Dreyfus. And then he's like, you know, okay, college boy, what can you do with this stuff? To me, that's when the character knew then. Like, I'm getting eaten. This is over. I'm not going to make it through this. Game over, man. Game over. <laughs> oh, man, I don't know if I'm going to die. <laughs> he knows then it's over. And 
earlier than that. He's like, some of it comes from he had so many shipmates on the Indianapolis die. He kind of has that guilt that he actually didn't. Survivor's and guilt. And I think that plays into it. And uh, to me, it's it's obvious enough that it, that had to be part of the deal. It, it couldn't have just been that something that they were lucky enough to get. And, and I, I, I love that. I, I just think that guilt that he made it and, and his buddy that was bobbing around in the water and his bottom half had been bitten off didn't, and he never got over that. And, and it's what really makes the movie to where it would never be dated. It's, it's such a human story. Let's talk a little bit about the music, too, because music is something you said really affected you, and, and it's studied in film classes. I do it in my film class. I play a guest the movie with just little bits of score, and between that, Psycho, Exorcist, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, all of those are iconic scores. And I think what was interesting is when he first introduced that score to Spielberg, Spielberg kind of said, okay, ha ha ha, John, what do you really have for me? And wasn't really something that he was completely behind. And now he says it's responsible for half the film's success. Another thing I liked about it was the, the chase scenes, where they're poking them with the barrels and they're chasing them along the boats. The music was fun. All the fear went away. They were so in the yes. moment. And the, and the music did that, too. The Great Shark Chase, is that, that's what that theme was called. And, and you're right. Oh, okay. It was this almost carnival-like feel to it. Oh, yeah. I would think that Spielberg probably just first saw it and thought, well, it's just too understated. I need a more dramatic effect. And I think in the end run, that less was more. You're going to need a bigger boat. In our most recent screening of this, how does the film hold up for you? I'd have to put it in my top five, top ten movies all time. To me, the movie, it's not dated, even given the mayor's clothes, just because it is such a human story, and there's just so many aspects of it, and the fear of the sheriff going on a boat, and being afraid of drowning, and the kid crying on the beach, and it holds up completely. I, I think you could show that movie in the theaters. If George Lucas would have done that movie, he'd have redone that shark like a hundred times. I think because of Jaws, Lou Gossett was able to reach the pinnacle of his career with Jaws 3D. <laughs> well, thank God Lou Gossett got a gig. Yeah, between him and Dennis Quaid and uh, Leah Thompson. I mean, we always talk about Scheider, Shaw, and, and Dreyfus, but really the teaming of Thompson, Gossett Jr., and Quaid is sadly, sadly overlooked. I think so many times. <laughs> oh, because the sequels were just so good. I yeah. Mean, uh, God, those sequels were just, they, they were great. I own all of them. Or I had uh, at one point before I donated them to the library and then they <laughs> used them for like firewood. <laughs> I can't believe you would throw out a Mario Van Peebles film. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God! See, I refuse to watch those sequels because it just—it taints the fact that the first movie was so good. You said taint. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Let's leave it at that, as we will leave this edition of Nazakashi as well. Please come join us, where we will again wax nostalgic through cinema and take a look at some obscure films that have somehow lodged themselves deep into the recess of our psyche for whatever reason. My name is Rob Rector. I'm Jeff Johnson, and I'll try and find something obscure next time. <laughs> no, that was perfect. All right. Thank you, and come see us again.